Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, my name is Vinny. If, if you don't know who this voice is, go back a couple podcasts and we were introduced to each other then. So I'm here with Rob on the Determined Truth Podcast. Rob, how's it going tonight? I'm doing great. Great. Wait, we did it Vinny. again. We gave away the time that we're uh, we're we're recording. Yeah, we're, we're, we're recording in the evening here again. Uh, yeah, we'll do this in the morning <laughs> and that's just the way it is. And it's morning somewhere in the it's world. Morning it's morning somewhere. Evening, it's, it's evening here. So I, I, absolutely. So let's get into it again. Yeah. So we uh, started a conversation about the book of Revelation and how to read this. I don't this know how we got on that topic. So yeah, right, exactly. Whatever. This is I okay, real tangent. I so I when I when anytime I teach on the book of Revelation, I actually recall a conversation you and I had. Um, because I said, you know, hey, I got to a point where I just didn't know what this thing was. And so as I started meeting with you but right before I entered seminary, I remember sitting in a, a coffee shop talking with you about this, and I just kind of was like, dude, do you you know how do we how do we know anything that's happening on this? You know, it, like, and I think I gave like the lame, like, oh, I'm pan millennial, it all pan out thing, you know? <laughs> and and I remember you ripped into me about it, how how the book of Revelation does matter. And it does, mm -hmm. it's not about just figuring out a map uh, or a, a, you know, a puzzle or something. And I remember thinking like, oh yeah, you don't tell a guy who just did a PhD in the <laughs> book of Revelation that doesn't it really doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. No, no. no so it was a great, that was my first seminary experience. I didn't even have to pay to be in a class for that one. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. So, so let's talk about it. So the book of Revelation is made up of uh, three different, what we would call genres. And we're going to take a few different episodes to kind of break down each one of those genres and what they mean. Um, I think this is kind of an exciting time in life to talk about what a genre is because 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't a word that we actually just used in popular culture, but with so many things happening electronically now, you go to Netflix and I know what kind of movie to watch. Oh. Is it going to be, you know, a romantic comedy or a documentary or something like that? It's already broken into genres, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I found that that's a helpful way to just kind of teach that, hey, the Bible is written in the same way. Any, any type of literary or our art is is going to be put in genres and you have to best know the genre in order to understand it. And it, do you actually just want to set up real quick? This isn't on our outline, but do you actually mm -hmm. want to set up the importance of knowing genres and how important that is to actually reading and understand any book of the Bible? Or or, or any anything that we do, any, any type of communication. Yeah, yeah. I think a genre, I think of like that nasty word that in high school English that I didn't want to care about at all, right? It was just like, okay, whatever that means. Um, but then you kind of you begin to realize, oh, wait a second, you know, um, one, there's several ways of illustrating it. One would be, you know, that if somebody walked into our culture from a, a, from another part of the part of the, uh, of the world, or maybe from an, a different generation, different century even, and I and I start walking off and I start saying, okay, once upon a time, and I go on. Right, now, as soon as I say once upon a time, you you know exactly what I mean. Okay, oh, he's telling it's a fairy, a fairy tale. tale. Yeah. There's going to be a queen and, and a princess, and and princess is going to get in distress. It's going to be a prince is going to save her. In fact, the last words of, the, of, of uh, he's going to say are going to be, and, and they all live happily ever after. Right. Well, someone else walking in from another culture, not knowing that genre, it might be going, what's going on here? Uh, this, sounds, this sounds lame. Do they really believe this? I mean, is he serious that there's actually, a, they, they believe in dragons? Yeah. Because they don't know, because the clue right from the beginning was once upon a time, immediately you know, okay, this is a fairy tale. And this is what's going to happen in a fairy tale. This is the nature of fairy tales. But someone else doesn't doesn't know that. Another way of looking at it would be, if I if we're talking about winning and losing, right now winning and losing, 
Well, obviously you and I immediately go to the sports page, right? Well, mm-hmm. okay. We're talking about sports. Right? And then, and believe it or not, it's not actually life and death, even though for us, it kind of is at times, right? Winning mm-hmm. and losing. And you especially can sympathize with the losing part, can't you? Uh, I just had <laughs> well to go. Played, so, Well sorry. played. Well yeah. played. Yeah. All right. There you go. Uh, anyways, uh, if you were with us a couple episodes ago, well, we talked about that a little bit too. All right. So, um, but winning and losing on the front page means something different than winning and losing on the sports page. And it means something totally different than winning and losing in the obituaries, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. because so winning and losing has this context in which we go, okay, that was a game and it's a bummer. Your team won or you lost and, 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 and you might be disappointed for a day or two, but you're going to get over it. But all of a sudden now you're talking about winning or losing a war. And now you have to live with the ramifications of that. And because of that, the communists came into power. We have to live under their, under this dictatorship from da, 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 da. You know, I had a long story short, I had a guy at my church uh, recently that actually um, w- grew up in Germany um, right before World War II. And then, and, and when World War II ended, um, uh, they got out uh, and left the country right before the wall was put up because mm. they were on the, on the east side. Mm-hmm. You know, so winning and losing and the consequence of winning and losing had real life effects. So genre has, has a significance and, and, and because it tells us the rules of the game, so to speak. How's that? Well, and then just it, like big picture, then applying yeah. that to the Bible, what you're saying is we're not just going to, and I, I think I grew mm-hmm. up in this, uh, especially in more of a fundamentalist uh, yep, viewpoint too. is you just kind of open up the Bible and the Bible is the Bible. And we would like, it's right. the word of God. It's God breathed. Therefore it doesn't matter if I'm opening up Genesis one or Genesis 12, or uh, Exodus 20 or Malachi or Song of Solomon or yep. the Proverbs or, you know, it, it just kind of, you know, you could parachute into any one of those different types of books. It, uh, you know, you, you might just think, oh, you just read them all the same. Right. Or, or, or the meaning is as clearly intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. And, and let's chase that for a second. Where does that come from? How do, how do we get there? Well, we got there primarily because when the Reformation begins, we'll go back to the 1500s, right? Essentially the starting point of the Reformation. For the Catholic Church at the time, the, the, the issue was, how do we know what the truth is? And the answer is, well, we have the Bible and we have tradition. And tradition goes on top of the Bible. And of course, Protestants go, no, the tradition replaces the Bible, or whatever. But nonetheless, they had these dual uh, um, sources of, of truth, right? The traditions of the church and the teachings of the scriptures. The reformers come along and say, well, we don't agree with a lot of your traditions. We don't, we don't think this is true. We don't believe in, in, in purgatory. We don't believe in this. We don't believe in the, the, the infallibility of the Pope and all, all these different issues that, that, that had arisen, some later, some, some, some earlier. And so they said, okay, the scriptures alone, sola scriptura became this credo of the Reformation and the Bible alone. So that began this earnestness. Okay, we have to get the Bible in the hands of the people. The people can interpret the Bible. And of course, the Catholic response to that was, if you put the Bible in the hands of the people, for every single person, there's going to be their own separate interpretation. And for 100 people, you're going to have 100 interpretations. And who's going to say what's right? Mm-hmm. And so the process became, had to respond to that by saying, well, A, this, this uh, riddle, this cliche became the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Oh, the Bible's plain. The meaning of the Bible is plain and clear, at least on the main things. Now, obviously, the question becomes, well, who defines what the main things are, mm-hmm. right? And, and who decides what, what plain meaning is plain, is the plain meaning. But nonetheless, this became the Protestant response to kind of this Catholic, uh, this, this Reformation, this ca- uh, counter-Catholic and anti-Catholic uh, movement. And so it, the, the plain meaning of the Bible became almost essential for Protestants because otherwise, how do you respond to the Catholic Church? Because the Catholic Church would say, okay, we have scholars, we have the Pope, we have, the, we have the, this, this means by which we interpret the Bible. 
the problem, of course, became, we got to be honest here, the Bible's not always very plain, Mm-mm. right? You know, um, uh, you have to hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciples. Well, okay, what do I do with that? Well, if, mm-hmm. the, if, the, if the plain meaning is a plain meaning, then sorry, mom and dad, but I love Jesus so much that I hate you now. And it's like, no, uh, you know, if, if your right eye caused you to stumble, pluck it out. Like, the, the reality is, I know every single one of the disciples had a problem with the right eye, I, right? I mean, we, it's, it's just endemic to humanity, but none of them plucked, plucked it out. So it doesn't mean that, does it? There's going to be something else going on. Um, and furthermore, I mean, let's be honest. If almost anyone in the church today opened up the book of Isaiah, they're going to have trouble with almost any, almost any statement in it. The book of Amos, the book of Micah, you know, let, let alone the gospel of Luke and the, and, and, and the New Testament. It's not always that easy to understand. And one of the reasons why is because, well, it's because it was written in an ancient world and an ancient context and the culture and the language and the customs and the history have changed. And we need to get, we need to, to, to recognize that. So our first job then is to figure out not only the genre, but what that genre meant to that time, to, to the time in which the author wrote and how would the people of that day have understood it. Uh, that become, and we could get into this in a future uh, uh, episode, like the, what we call history is not how they wrote history back in the Old Testament world. It, you know, we were, it's factual, it's truthful, it's, it's chronological, and, and that's simply not what's happening. And when you read First, first Samuel, for example, it's not even, a lot of it's not even chronological. Um, so... Well, I mean, even there, like, even if we refer to the gospels as a biography of Jesus and in a sense it is, but that's when we don't want to become anachronistic and, uh, you know, look back on that and say, okay, well, this is the way a biography looks in modern American, uh, you know, uh, history. And this is how, you know, Barack Obama's biography looked like, or, or, you know, any figure. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. We have equality there. Um, and so you wouldn't say, okay, well then that's the way it ought to look 2000 years ago. (laughs) Exactly. Because the gospel of Mark begins with Jesus being 30 years old. Mm -hmm. It's like what, what biography starts with a 30 year old. And he starts by quoting someone else that happened a couple hundred years before that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. So it becomes really, really important. Now, when you start being, I think our last podcast, we talked about a little bit, you know, okay, or two, two podcast episodes ago, you know, what excites you the most? What, for me, as you get behind the text, as you start getting underneath the text and start getting, realizing what's going on in the ancient, it, it, it really, it comes to life. And not only does it come to life, but it has this beauty of the way they wrote is like, oh my, this isn't, this is really, this is really cool. Uh, they, they use all kinds of things that we wouldn't even consider using today and, and tools and literary methods and all these other things to accent the meaning. Because remember one of the things I have to, to, to recognize is the ancient text was read out loud and you heard it. Mm-hmm. And so we see chapter breaks and paragraph breaks, but they didn't, they had to hear them. And so when you start reading the text as though you're a listener, and looking at these rhetorical clues are like, oh, 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 this was, oh, oh. And it, it really becomes a, a lot of fun. Obviously that takes a little bit of, of work now, but that that becomes part of the process. Yeah, and when we talk about work, I mean, as a, as a modern reader, the genre that probably requires the most amount of work on our end is gonna be that of apocalyptic. Because <laughs> it's the most foreign to us. Exactly, and, and it's, yeah. it's, you know, the, the closer you get to the original uh, time it was written, the mo- more it makes sense. Uh, right. and so, so we have a way more difficult time understanding something like Revelation or something like a Daniel, um, you know, the, those middle sections of Daniel. Mm-hmm. We have a much more difficult time understanding it than those, you know, the original audience would have. And so we just need to do a little bit more work or a lot more work, uh, not only to deprogram some things we've learned, uh, but then actually have a, a strong foundation and build from there, right? 
Right. Now, all right, so let's talk, let's talk about the genre of the book of Revelation for a second. All right. Or not for a second. How about for like three or four episodes? Okay. Right, here we go. All right. So, so the book of Revelation has uh, three genres. Uh, it's, a, it's an apocalyptic, but it's also prophetic, and it's also a letter or epistolary. Now, the first thing to recognize with that is, is that you don't say, okay, well, that verse is apocalyptic, and that verse is prophetic. Okay, and then that chapter is like a letter. For example, the seven letters of chapters two and three. Okay, these are letters. Well, actually, they're letters, but they're also prophetic, and they're also apocalyptic. They're kind of all wrapped up into one. Uh, so let's begin with apocalyptic, though. And, and that's the one that, that captures the most attention, that captures the most intrigue. Let me kind of begin by asking you, all right, so Vinny, what do you think the average person in your church thinks of when they think of the word apocalyptic or they hear that the genre of apocalyptic? So I would say not, I wouldn't even qualify this as average person in the church. I would say American culture. Yeah, right. It means, oh, the apocalypse is the end of the world. Mm -hmm. we, we know we have a movie like Apocalypse Now. Exactly. And, and it's just, it's craziness. It's bad stuff. This is the end of the world. Uh, yeah, th th that's, that's what it's totally connected to. Right, right, and so it's, and and it's uh, um, uh, cosmic upheaval, right? Yep. The, the 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 moon's falling down, and the stars, and nuclear warfare, mm -hmm. or alien invasion, right? All these things are, are signs of apocalyptic, but it means it means the, uh, it's bad. It's not the good. world. Yep. Right now, what's intriguing about that, also, of course, and and one of the problems that we get when we come to the Book of Revelation, of course, that people begin to, with the assumption. I think we talked about this earlier, that it's about us. So it's this apocalyptic upheaval. It's this end of the world type of stuff. And oh, we happen to be the generation that's living in the end. Now, if we were to spend some time on this, a really interesting study, by the way, is a study of the history of the end of the mm -hmm. world uh, in Christendom. Uh, first off, you'd find almost any, every single generation since the time of the New Testament thought that they were the end of the world. And of course, open up First Thessalonians, they thought it was the end of the world. Uh, and Second Thessalonians, they thought the end was then. And even First Peter writes, well, about the delay right? Because they were expecting it at any time. And that didn't change in the second century, the third century, the fourth century, let alone the 20th and 21st centuries. We've always thought it's about us and it's about, the, it's about the end of the world. Well, the first thing is this, the word apocalyptic itself means to unveil, right? Which is interesting because I think when many people think of apocalyptic, they think of something like hidden secretive mm -hmm. meaning is, is embedded in some, some uh, symbol, a symbolic thing there. But the word apocalyptic actually means to unveil, to, to reveal, but there's a secret, and that's this, and that is it's not unveiling to everyone. It's unveiling to, well, the one who has ears to hear. Uh, and so the seven letters of Revelation chapters two and three, you know, each ends with, uh, you know, um, let anyone who has insight listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, right? Um, I'm opening it up too for some reason, um, right? Uh, he who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and that phrase appears throughout each one of the seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we realize, okay, it's, it's an unveiling, but it's an only an unveiling to the one who has ears to hear. Uh, and of course, that actually reminds us of something even more significant outside the book of Revelation, where mm -hmm. we hear that phrase before. And of course, that's the Gospels. When Jesus tells a parable, he'll often say, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, the most significant parable, parable I would argue, uh, and I've written a little bit about this, at least in my blog, uh, is in Mark 4. Uh, and in Mark 4, Jesus uh, tells a parable. Uh, and then the, the last phrase, Mark 4, verses 3 through 9 is the parable. Uh, and then he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear in verse 9. Now, the next verse comes up and says, okay, his disciples, along with the 12, they're like, right, what does this parable mean? And, and, they, and they began to ask him about the parables. 
Right? And then it says in verse 33, if you skip down to the end of the chapter or near the end of the chapter, it says in verse 33, uh, Mark 4, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Mm-hmm. So it's an unveiling, and we'll go into more detail later, an unveiling of what, but it's an unveiling, but first off, to those who have ears to hear. Uh, and so we realized that there's a couple of things I would, would want to say about that. One is the book of Revelation is not the only apocalyptic element in the New Testament. So sure, you mentioned earlier the book of Daniel and of course, Ezekiel and parts of Isaiah and other places. But actually, apocalyptic language runs throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Uh, so, and the most notable example then is, is of course, Jesus's parables and the way, and the way he tells parables. Hmm. Wow. So in order then, even going back to a, something we mentioned earlier about the plain reading of the text. So even that concept, just reading the gospels, it's not that we, we need to understand apocalypse or apocalyptic literature just to read revelation. That It's not something we're just saving for that. You're even saying like something like the gospels are going to kind of jump in and out uh, and kind of skip around and, and sprinkle some other genres or have a subgenre within that. Yeah. Yeah. The gospels, the <sighs> I think there's a lot of reasons to suspect that the gospel of Mark is largely apocalyptic or mm-hmm. uh, apocalyptic is, is sprinkled throughout it. Um, and, and so, uh, for example, you know, apocalyptic is, is often going to have um, significant use of numbers. Numbers are going to have the, a, 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 a symbolic significance. Well, Genesis chapter one, right? I mean, there's seven days of creation, the, the word and God um, uh, and God saw that it was good appears mm-hmm. seven times. I mean, numbers and the significance of numbers, is throughout the throughout the biblical text, right? I mean, there's it's just all over the place. Actually, it's really fun when you begin realizing, oh my gosh, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. You know, the numbers forty and forty days and forty nights, and um, Moses was up on the mountainside for forty days. You begin realizing, oh, I, I was teaching the other night on the Book of Daniel, um, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue is sixty feet by six mm-hmm. feet, right? And you begin realizing, oh wait, there's six six, mm-hmm. and th- and if you keep looking, there's another six. Solomon had six hundred and sixty six talents of gold. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, 666 isn't something new in the book of Revelation. Actually, it has uh, precursors and Goliath. Uh, the description of Goliath has 666 embedded mm-hmm. in it. The, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue is 666 and Solomon's uh, yearly intake of gold was 666. So uh, it, it runs throughout the scriptures. But uh, so, so even right there, though, I mean, and, and you have a great uh, chapter, at least one chapter, not multiple ones in your book. Follow I, hope, the Lamb. I only have one great chapter. What are you talking about? No, only one. Oh, and okay. this was the one you nailed it. So the okay, other one, okay, but uh, you have a really good chapter on how to interpret and read biblical, you know, numbers specifically in the book mm-hmm. of Revelation. Right. In and, and you've convinced me, especially reading the book of Revelation, that, okay, numbers matter. You Like, you can't deny it, right? But even the concept of hearing, okay, throughout the Bible, when there's certain numbers that you look at and they have certain meanings. I mean, right now, we're recording this podcast in June of t- 2021, a decade ago, May 21st, 2011. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was a time when you and I were serving uh, together on, on a church staff. That was literally the midst of, hey, the end of the world is coming. And, yeah. and you had, uh, you know, a false teacher like Harold Camping, who he, mm-hmm. he was famous for stringing numbers together. E- even there, how do we uh, yeah, yeah. rightly ap- ap- uh, apply and look for biblical numbers? And when are we spiritualizing yeah. it or just twisting it and making something it's not? And that's a great question. When I first heard of this idea, and, and I like you came up in a very fundamentalist camp, right? We're really concerned about preserving the accuracy of the text. We're really concerned about uh, making sure that wackos and liberals and everybody else don't get a hold of it and do all kinds of wacky th- things with it. 
So I was extremely skeptical. I'm like, okay, no, you can't do that. All right, maybe the number seven, whatever. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, but everything else, no way, no way, no way. And then as I began studying the book of Revelation and in, in, in depth, I began realizing, okay, this is, it's just all over the text. I mean, the number seven is everywhere. You know, and obviously the gospel of John has seven days in the first uh, two or three chapters of, his, uh, of, of, of a week. Uh, seven I am's in the gospel of John. You'd be like, okay, well, I guess they did. They kind of did use these things. And there's certain names and titles for God in the book of Revelation that occur seven times. All right, this is clearly intentional. And then as you start unpacking the book of Revelation, you begin realizing, okay, now the number 12 is being used here, 144, 12 times 12, and there's 12 tribes and 12 apostles. And, and okay, this number uh, it appears consistently. So the first thing I say, all right, if it's very clear that the author is clearly intentionally doing this, uh, that, that's the first thing. It, it has to be something that, that the author intended, not something that you just found happenstance later on. Uh, number two, the, the meaning, and this I think is the key, the meaning of the numbers enhances what the author's already trying to say. All right. So we know that God is sovereign, God is holy, and God is true. And then he uses the number seven, which represents perfection and completion and totality for God. Right. And of course, names for the devil or the dragon or the beast never occur seven times, but only six. Although sometimes the dragon will have seven heads because, of course, the dragon's trying to imitate God. Right. I mean, that's the whole idea that the, the, the beast number one in, in Revelation 13 looks like he's Jesus. He, he appeared to be slain. So. All right. So when Satan's imitating God, then he has seven. But if the number enhances the meaning that the author has already embedded in the text, then we know we're in good stead. If you take that number and begin to have some significant application to some prophetic insight, then you're done. No way. Don't go there. Because the authors don't, aren't using it for that purpose. They're using it to signify something that's already there within the text. Hmm. That's a, that's seriously so helpful, even for me yeah. as someone to teach yeah. it, because yeah. I haven't been able to personally make that connection in terms of saying, yeah, this is okay, but no, it's not. And it, it just seems so subjective. So right, that's a right. great, I think a great boundary yeah. to put there. Yeah. Good. Uh, so then when we get into the, you know, the, the, the term apocalyptic itself, uh, you know, where do we get that from? Like, wh why would yeah. we even tie that uh, to the book of revelation? Is that just a made up term? Like, what does that even, like we said, it, it means unveil, but where do we get it? All right. Very good. So uh, let's distinguish between apocalyptic and an apocalypse. All right, so an apocalypse is a writing that is what we might call apocalyptic, right? It's an, it's an apocalyptic writing um, that itself has a high level of imagery, um, uh, cosmic upheaval, sun, the moon, and the stars, you know, going on, the moon becomes like blood, the sun becomes black, and stars from the sky fall, and the scroll, the sky rolls up like a scroll, right. and it uses this highly symbolic language that sounds like the end of the world. So that's why... People think it's about the end of the world because it certainly sounds like it's the end of the world. I mean, we know in the modern world that if the sun becomes black and the moon becomes like blood and the stars fall from the sky, that's the end of the world because you mm -hmm. can't have life after that. But they didn't know that. So it sounds like the end of the world. It's this cosmic language, this cosmic upheaval, and that's an apocalypse. Uh, apocalyptic might be more like an adjective that, that is the language describing that, that's used. So when Jesus tells a parable, hey, it means to unveil. And it means that what I say was hidden unless you have ears to hear. So Jesus' parables are not an apocalypse, right? Because they aren't about the end of the world, but they're apocalyptic because mm -hmm. his parables were hidden unless you have ears to hear. All right. Unless, okay, what does this mean? And of course, we know in the gospels that the, like the secret to understanding the, uh, the parables was that it was about Jesus and the coming of the kingdom. Once you realize that parables are telling that the nature of the kingdom and the significance of Christ and the coming of the kingdom, then the parables begin to make sense. But the Pharisees didn't understand that, and, and, and therefore, therefore they're lost. 
All right. So the problem with the with um, the genre apocalypse or an apocalypses is the fact that we actually get the name from the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of what's in logic is called a tautology. It's just it just names itself. The very first word in the Greek text is apocalypsis, from which we get the name apocalypse. And so Revelation becomes like the standard bearer. um, But we have many other writings outside the biblical text and Jewish writings and early Christian writings and, and even some other, uh, other writings that have this apocalyptic nature. And so we know that apocalypse has existed for 100 to 200 years before the time of Jesus and even after uh, the, the time of the New Testament. Um, and it's basically this um, style of writing that refers to um, God being in control and God's sovereign will being done. Um, and uh, I'm going to show you exactly what that means, uh, so to speak. And and the reason why the, these writings started popping up about a hundred years before Jesus, this is going to be during the intertestamental period. Right. Uh, we're we're not seeing uh, you know books that we would consider canon, uh, you know, written at this point. And so there's something happening though, in which the people of God are waiting for a mm-hmm. prophet. They're waiting for someone to speak. But but and that's not happening. But these stories are happening. So it, this is very much tied to the history of the Jewish people uh, preceding the time of Jesus, right? Right. So to add to that, what what we tend to believe is that the Old Testament ends with maybe Ezra, fourth century BC, somewhere around there, right? And when and you say so, ends, meaning like chronologically, that was the yeah, last thing. The last, the last of the prophets. Mm-hmm. No, no prophetic voices. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the story of John the Baptist and his beheading, they're like, uh, "Who is this guy? Uh, th- this Jesus guy?" Oh. Well, some say he's John the Baptist, and some say he's Elijah, and some say he's one of the prophets, like the prophets of old. Mm-hmm. And, and what that's what's saying is, we don't have prophets any longer, but we used to have them a long time ago. And so in this era up to the time of Christ, so prior to Christ, maybe two, three hundred years or more before that, you didn't have um, prophet, you didn't have any prophets. And so uh, apocalyptic comes in because another feature of apocalyptic writings is the fact that you actually say someone's famous wrote it centuries beforehand. So the apocalypse of Abraham or, the, or, or, or Enoch, you know, uh, or, Enoch yeah. right? Yeah. These other, and so it was, Oh, it was written by so-and-so beforehand. And he actually tells you the history of the world up to, up to our day. And it's going to end shortly after ours. And, and so, and, and see, they, they, they nailed everything prior to us. They got it all right. So therefore what they say about it's going to happen after us, that must be true also. And so it's called a pseudonym, right? A false name, a false author. Now, the book of Revelation doesn't seem to fit that because it it clearly identifies its author as John, right? And we could debate all day whether it's John the Apostle or some Mm -hmm. early first century of John. It doesn't matter. The author is identifying himself and not under a pseudonym. He's he's not claiming to be somebody that he's not. And isn't Um, this like, from what I understand, the only apocalyptic work we have, the only apocalypse that does name someone who actually is living and known at the time? Because all the other ones are going to, I remember reading this in a commentary somewhere, like all the other ones are going to be people who you would assume, it's not like, oh, wow, we we have Moses' apocalypse now, or Abraham's apocalypse. They know that, okay, this is is a story in in a sense. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the people that were writing uh, these apocalypse, the the apocalypse of of Moses or uh, of, of Abraham and the Testament of Abraham and things of these natures, they, the people of that day, they knew that it was a false name. They knew mm-hmm. that it wasn't real. They, they knew that Moses didn't write this or Abraham didn't write this or Enoch didn't write. They knew that, but it was under the guise of, okay, look, we, we just chronicled history up to, uh, and what you saw was how God was uh, um, working throughout history and history is accurate. And so we can trust from today and, and on that God's still that same God that's, that's in history. So they knew it wasn't actually true prophetic, um, but they couldn't use the prophetic genre. That was the point, right? They couldn't, they couldn't use the genre of prophecy 
because they weren't prophets and there weren't any prophets at the time. So, hence so, the, the so they would be confusing thing. this with an authoritative uh, type writing, but but it was important to them and it influenced yeah. culture. In yeah, sense. yeah. And, and authoritative is kind of a word that we got a little bit because what we think by and I think what we're meaning by that is on the level of scripture. Yeah. Um, but it was authoritative for them. It, it was. Um, and some, it might even be authoritative in the sense of equal, of equal with the scriptures. They, they mm. might have actually have, have, have included this in the scriptures. Now, the book of Daniel has these apocalyptic elements, right? There's no question about it. Um, and so, um, but, uh, and, and, it's, and it's accepted as, as, as scripture. Yeah. So, so, it, so this is a style that's happening then. And so, you know, if, if I'm growing up as a, you know, a Jewish man and I'm living in the late first century. Right. I'm very familiar with the yes. genre of apocalypse. That's correct. And, and so, you know, when I hear John's apocalypse, uh, the, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, right. right? Right immediately when I hear those words, I'm I'm recalling everything that happens in my culture that has just shaped me and formed me. I, I know yeah. these stories. I've heard you know them. know what to at, expect. It, exactly. It's like saying once upon a time. It's yes. to someone who knows what once upon a time means. Now, don't take that analogy to go, oh, that the it's genre fairy tale. of apocalyptic yeah. is a fairy It's not a fairy tale. I'm just saying, we know that once upon a time means this, right? Yes. Or, you know, uh, uh, exactly. So yeah, you're familiar with it. You're familiar with the language and, and the const and the customs and, and what, what you're going to expect. You're going to have, when you, when you hear about a seven-headed dragon, you're like, yep, I, that's what I was expecting. We're like, okay, is it, is it, is it real? I mean, did, were there actually dragons? Like, did they actually have seven heads? That, they're not thinking that. Uh, yeah. they're, so they're it's, in the same, that. it's in the same Character. way when, when I go to a movie theater and see little blue lettering across the screen that says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far yeah. away, I immediately know what I'm going to. I'm going to get spaceships yeah. and I'm going to get you know funny looking animals. And those. Are, it's like, you just know what's going to happen in a Star Wars movie. Right, exactly. So, exactly. So it's the same exact thing. That, that's right. And obviously, since that's not something familiar to us, then we're already at kind of handicapped. And so now we have to do the good work of going, okay, what would this have meant to its author and to that original audience? Yeah. So to, to provide a little charity then to our friends who um, might take a more literalistic approach to the book of Revelation and, and, and certainly viewpoints that have influenced us, mm -hmm. you know, right. in our younger years these folks are trying to do their best. Like they, they, you can't just, you're not just born knowing what any of this stuff means. Right. And so if you are just reading it, it's like, well, what else am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> and so there's a sense where it's like, okay, there's some charity there. Cause this is a hard thing that you're, you know, that, that, that is trying to be read. Um, it, it's just acknowledging, okay, we actually need to go way outside of ourselves to understand this. And it's not just me and the Holy spirit reading this thing. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so now we have to do a little bit of a, a little bit of trust of, hey, those scholars that have done the research of what apocalyptic writings were like, and and, and what's going on there, um, and, and trust that. Now, again, let's remind ourselves that the entire book of Revelation is not this apocalyptic. It's it calls itself a prophecy. Blessed are those who read the words of the prophecy of this book, and it's framed as a letter. I, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, right. And it ends with a customary uh, epistolary ending. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a letter, um, it's uh, a prophecy, and it's also apocalyptic. And so it's kind of all these all all these together at one. 
Yeah. And then we'll, we'll, we'll get into all, you know, those other two genres as well, but even like the, the seven letters don't read like letters. They read like prophecy in, in, in terms of like, it's, it's the prophet going and telling the people of God, Hey, this is what you need to be doing. You're not doing this, or you should right. be doing this or keep this up. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about the seven letters uh, later yeah. on as well, but, but they don't actually read as letters like no. Paul's letters of, of Philippians or Colossians. Except they don't read like that at all. Um, so we got realized immediately, okay, Hey, this says it's a letter, but there's something different going on. Yeah. So, so, so like, even just to wrap up this analogy, just like when I watch star Wars, it's a science fiction movie and there might be a love story element of it in there because there might be Han and Leia. Uh, am yeah. I totally nerding out on you? Are you, I, we've never, no, you're, you're okay. You're okay. okay, okay. If you went to star Trek, then you'd be totally nerding. No, out I'm not, I'm not going to go there. That's, that's uh, for the uh, nerds, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, we're not going too far. They might be listening. <laughs> yeah. They are listening. And yeah, anyway, so, but, but there's a love element. So there's a Han and Leia like love scene or not love scene, but you know, like a, a, a love connection, this Story, thing, yeah. but it's not a romance movie, right? right? It's not a romantic comedy. There might be a joke, but it's not a, a, a comedic thing. Right. And so right. It's, it's still in the, in yeah, the genre point. of science fiction, even though it might contain these other things. Right. That's right. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Cool. So, um, you know, the goal then, if you were to, if you were then to, um, summarize the goal of apocalyptic writings it's not just to create a weird genre right right what, what okay. is the goal of this thing okay so very 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 important then one of the first keys then is with apocalyptic writings is that god's in control of history and what that what, what's saying that is is that apocalypses were written to a community that was in crisis they were under oppression typically some foreign entity some foreign empire is overwhelming them and it looks like they have no hope of, of survival and the prophet or the apocalyptic writer is writing to say, no, guess what? God's actually in control. So, so one of the things I actually like to do when I start teaching on the book of Revelation, I was preaching a sermon a couple of months ago on the book of Revelation, and I started with a story in 2 Kings 6. And, and in the story, I'm just kind of giving it a nutshell, the, the king of Aram, and Aram is, is um, Damascus, it's Syria. The king of Aram is waging war against Israel, right? The people of Israel. Um, and every time he goes to fight a battle, it's the, the, the Israelites are already there and they're prepared for him to come. And like, wait a minute. So the king of Aram goes back to his advisors and he says, okay, listen guys, one of you's an insider, one of you guys working for them. Cause every time we go to make, wage a war, they know exactly where we're going and, and where we're at and they're prepared for us. And someone responds to the king of Aram says, no, they have a prophet named Elisha and he knows what you're thinking even in your bedroom. And so the king of Aram says, okay, well the next battle we're going after Elisha, right? We're, we're going to go get him. So, Early in the morning, a couple of days later, whatever it might be, the king of uh, Elijah's servant opens up the door and he realizes, oh, no, we're in trouble because the king of Aram's army is surrounding the house uh, where, where Elijah's at. And, 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 and the, um, the servant comes back into Elijah and says, oh, you know what? We're in trouble. Uh, you should see what's outside. And Elijah turns and he says, and he says, um, he answered, this is verse uh, 16 of 2 Second Kings 6. He, it says, he answered and said, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O oh Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what's happening then is um, God's army is actually surrounding us also. You just can't see them unless I open up their, your eyes. And actually God's forces are even more powerful than the forces that are oppressing us. And that's actually, I, th I think, a good analogy or illustration of what's happening in apocalyptic writing is that you're under oppression. The foreign the Romans, for example, in the first century, they, it looks like there's no hope. They're going to wipe you out. And then 
the apocalyptic writer says, no, actually, there's this God who sits on a throne and he's totally in control. He's the creator of all things, right? This Roman Revelation chapter four. He created all things and by his power, he upholds all things. And guess what? He sent Jesus and Jesus has died and risen again and he sits in throne and he's going to come back. And in the meantime, you need to be faithful because God's going to bring this to a victorious ending. So uh, that, that's the, the first major key that God's actually in control of history and he's in control of your situation. And you just, and, and I guess the second point I would be would, would be that you need to remain faithful for just a little while longer. Now that's actually important because Vinny, the, the, the kind of the background that you and I kind of came up in was, oh, the book of Revelation is about how God's going to take his church out of the way and then bring, you know, all hell break loose on everybody else, right? It's going to get really bad in the world. Um, but uh, the church is taken out of the way. And instead, we realized, no, apocalypses were written to a, a community that was suffering and being oppressed and telling them, hang in there a little, I'm not taking you out of the way, but I will protect you in the midst of it all and bring, it, bring this to a great climax and culmination if you remain faithful. So basically, then it doesn't matter if you're suffering under the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or Nazi Germany or you know North Korea, or right. e even in America, wherever you may be at, if, regardless of the period of time, the apocalypse, uh, th that genre is so applicable because right. it's an encouragement to say, hey, don't worry. And not in the, the cheesy way where it's like, God wins in the end and that's all you need to know because right. we're right. out of here. And, you know, because that's kind of where it goes, but it's like, like the aspect of stay faithful and it might right. get really gnarly for you. And right, so stay right. faithful through that. It's okay. Now let's, let's clarify too, that the suffering that you're undergoing is because of the gospel, Yes. right? Not because you're a jerk, right? Yes. I mean, let's be honest. Oh, I'm suffering. No, actually you brought that on yourself. Yes. Uh, right. But it's suffering up for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom, because you're proclaiming this thing of it this way. If the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord, well, that's not going to go over too well in the first century Roman world because Caesar was Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, it's not going to go over too well. And even in our culture, because my money is Lord, my power is Lord, my truck is Lord, my family is Lord, my ego is Lord, my self-esteem is Lord, right? My education is Lord. We have so many Lords and all of a sudden, no, uh, Rob, Vinny, you got to deny yourself and put all the, none of those are the Lords. Jesus is Lord. And people don't really want to hear that because sometimes I don't want to hear it. And I'm sure sometimes, you know, you don't want to hear it. Um, but, but so as a result of that proclamation, faithfully living out the gospel, it brings on suffering for the, uh, for the sake of the gospel and faithfully enduring that is the key. Are, are you familiar with um, early rain covenant church in China? No. So it, it was December of, I want to say 2018, maybe 2017. I might be getting this wrong, but it, this is a very famous, um, or, you know, pop, influential, um, uh, you know, house church in China. Mm -hmm. And so and they did a lot of training for, uh, you know, other churches and just, you know, really leveraging uh, what God had given them. And the pastor who's very influential there in the underground, he's not part of the state church. Right. And so he actually like, you know, the cops came and they just pulled them away, uh, you know, one day and they've really made sure to harass this particular congregation. And so you mm -hmm. can actually like go on a Facebook and like go to like pray for early covenant rain church. And there's okay. a Facebook page where they'll send out letters and they'll give updates on what's going on with their congregation. But you have a church like this where members are, are constantly being harassed. 
you know, you might show up to your job one day and the cops are there and they're just going to arrest you for no reason, or your landlord's kicking you out of your house. And, and this is all because of yeah. Jesus, like, right. and because you're a part of a church community that is not registering with the government, it's not getting their sermons right. uh, approved beforehand. You're not showing, you know, tithe receipts and, and those sorts of things. It's literally like, no, we, we are being faithful to Jesus, not uh, you know, Chinese Caesar, uh, you know, in, in this context, yeah, exactly. these, these families who, when they don't know where their husband's at and he's not getting a fair trial, like these are the families that can read through revelation and say, okay, this is for us. Yeah. Th yeah. This is, this is the good news right here that we could hold on to. And my, right. I know my husband is being faithful right now. And as families, we are being faithful right now. Yeah. God is good. Right. And, but, and it still hurts. It yeah. still hurts tremendously. Yeah. So, so, uh, I was given an assignment. I'm writing a chapter in a book. Um, I don't know actually all the details in terms of the, the book or whatever. I just got an assignment to write a chapter on the book of Revelation. And the assignment that I got was um, Revelation is a book of hope. And what's interesting is, you know, here I've spent 20 or more years now in the book of Revelation. And my, my initial thought was, there ain't any hope in the book of Revelation. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I immediately thought, of course there is. It's all over the place. But what I caught myself doing was, that initial reaction of well, there's no hope in the book of Revelation was actually the way I was raised, mm -hmm. right? The book of Revelation is not about hope. It's about judgment, about wrath. Okay, I guess there's hope at the end because Jesus returns, but that's not what it's about. But then I, but then I immediately went, went, no, no, that's the whole point of the whole book, actually, is that it's, it's all about, I mean, hope is everywhere. I initially thought, I, how can I write a chapter in the book on, on hope? There's, um, there's not, not going to be anything to say, right? That was my initial thought. And I thought, no, actually, I got a lot to say because the whole book is about it. And as I've been writing the chapter, I began realizing, actually, the, the more you suffer, the more hope you see in it, mm. right? It says in Revelation 7 that they will hunger no longer. Well, if you hunger now, then you find even more hope in that. But you and I, we're well fed. I just had a good meal just a little while ago. Uh, that, that doesn't give me as much hope, right? If, if, if you labor out in the intense sunshine, well, the sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, because the lamb and the sun of the sun will guide them to the springs of the water of... Okay, that gives you more hope. But you and I, we're in our air-conditioned homes most of the time. And, you know, we, all right, so the more oppressed you are, the more suffering you are, the, the worse your conditions are, the more hope you find in it. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Interesting. So you had mentioned how, you know, this aspect of judgment in the book of Revelation. Right. And, and, and when we read it, like, it seems like that's part of it. And right. that's definitely like the focus that we hear about, you know, in our modern culture, like what part does judgment play in the book of Revelation? Yeah. So it plays the part that there's clearly judgment for everyone at the end of time. That, mm -hmm. so there's no question that when we, that there's, that there's a great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, and we're all going to be judged for our deeds done no, no, and whether our names are in the book of life. But earlier in the text, no, it, it, we're misreading it, the, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, we're misreading it. So I'm writing a commentary right now that I hope will be out in probably a year and a half to two more years. And, and I'm telling it, the book of Revela Revelation, a love story. Hmm. Right? Now, as soon as you say Revelation, a love story, your immediate thought is, okay, this guy has no idea what the book's about because it's clearly not a love story, right? It's about wrath and plagues and da da da. But the reality is, that the storyline in the book of Revelation that we'll get into more and more as we, as we proceed is the story about how God's going to bring redemption to the creation, not only to the people and to the nations, but also to a restoration of this entirety of creation. How is God going to do this? 
Right, now, the, up, the way that you and I were kind of raised to, to believe is, okay, well, he's giving everybody this chance to repent. And if, he does, if they don't repent, boom, he's going to strike a plague here and kill one fourth of mankind. And the, uh, the other three fourths, they better repent. Because if not, then boom, plague, another plague's going to kill another fourth of mankind. Right? He's just going to continuously um, issue out these wrathful, vengeful acts of God and judgments. And hopefully people get the message and respond. But instead, what you see in the book of Revelation, actually, is the wrath does not bring repentance. It says in Revelation 9, at the end of the sixth plague of the sixth trumpet, it says, those who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. And what you recognize is, okay, wait a minute. Repentance is the goal. That's the whole point. But they're not repenting. So the, the plagues of what we might call plagues of the trumpets don't actually bring repentance. So the question becomes, okay, then what does bring repentance? And the answer is, well, how did it work with Jesus, right? Jesus didn't come and bring wrath upon the nations. Jesus came and died for them, right? It was, it's the faithful, loving, sacrificial life of Jesus. And that's exactly what, what plays out in the book of Revelation, that as God's people then follow Jesus as the faithful, loving, sacrificial witnesses, and then they die. That's the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 that we can get into later as well. Have you studied as, as, that? Have you studied that chapter much? I, I think I might have wrote a book on it. Yeah, maybe. So a little yeah, bit. Okay. So, um, as the two witnesses are faithful, loving, sacrificial witnesses, and then they die, and then it says that, that they rise up to heaven, right after three and a half days, and then those who look on gave glory to God. Ah, there's your answer. The nations repent after they see the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. Hmm. And so they repent because we died for them. Just like, just like Jesus died for us and loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. So we love the nation so much, we lay down our lives for them. And that's what brings them to repentance. Now, it may be that we actually have to die for that person next door, that person down the street, the person that we know to actually see, wait a minute, that, that guy, that, that girl was actually, yeah, that, yeah, you know what? I want to know more about what they were believing because they died for this. And they loved me so much. They laid down their lives. They didn't, they weren't wrathful and scornful and angry and vengeful. They were loving and, and empathetic and, and kind and compassionate. Uh, tell me more about what, what's going on here. Cause something strange, you know, we killed them and, and they still, they still did this. That's the, that's the key. I think in the book of revelation. Okay. So speaking of keys, as we start wrapping things up, yeah. key takeaways, you know, specifically in regards to apocalyptic right. uh, writings. Yeah. All right, so the key takeaway would be first off that apocalypses were written to the people of their day to encourage them to persevere because God's the one that's in control, right? So John describes himself in Revelation 1.9 as uh, your, your brother and, 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 and fellow partaker in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the perseverance that are in Jesus. Uh, I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation, the suffering, kingdom, that God's actually the king, and the perseverance, and we're called to persevere. So uh, it's, it's written to the people of their day saying that God's really in control, hang in there, and, uh, and God will reward you and ultimately bring about the, uh, the, the, the eternality of his kingdom. So what's that have to do with predicting the future? Um, not much at all, right? right? It, that's the whole idea, right? Now, and by the way, prophecies weren't about predicting the future either, mm -hmm. which we'll go into next time. It, it doesn't have hardly anything to say about predicting the future. The, the whole point is it says, yeah, there'll be a day when this kingdom will be consummated, but it's not an interest in telling you when that is. What, what, what the apocalypses are interested in doing is saying, be faithful until it comes. And, and it's the same thing in the gospel, right? You, you know, Jesus's answer is when you're coming back, is like, I don't even know when I'm coming back, but be faithful until I come. 
So it's not about the future. It's not about predicting the future. It's about saying, be faithful until then. Yeah. So you're not denying there's a future element. And you just talked, we talked about mm -hmm. that a few minutes ago, where there is this judgment piece, but that's not the majority of the focus of the book. It's not it's hardly the focus at all, right? Yeah. It's hardly the focus at all. It'll happen, but it's not interested in telling you when. It's telling you, it, it will happen, but it's not interested in telling you when. It's just, of course, uh, it'll be a little while. That's a, that's one of the key phrases you see in the, in the apocalyptic writings. It'll be a little while. Um, and, oh, okay, great. But obviously a little while so far has been almost 1900 plus years since the time of Jesus now. So. Well, so then how do I'm like, like earnestly when we are reading this and you're, you're reading the first verse of the book and it says, hey, these are things that are soon going to take place. Like, right. how, how are we supposed to understand that, especially in light of how you've described how apocalypse is, uh, you know, maybe define or don't define time. Yeah. If, if I were to say there's one thing in eschatology, right? The study of the end times that makes me uncomfortable in my explanation. I'd say this is it. I don't know the answer to this one. Uh, Apocalypses were written to say it'll, it's only going to be a little while. Um, and clearly it's been 1900 years, which seems to be much more than a little while for me. And, and we can rationalize all kinds of ways. We can say, okay, well, it's a little while in God's time. That, okay, that's fine. But that's not what the point was. The point was, I'm not saying a little while in God's time. I'm saying a little while as far as your understanding of it is. Now, we can stop and say, well, it was a little while for that person because they only lived 20 more years or 40 or 50 more years, right? Um, but it's, the suggestion is, it, it seems to have this, this implication of it'll be soon, um, as we understand soon. Um, but that doesn't seem to happen. Now, in the book of Revelation, I don't think uh, that that message isn't there. That, that, you get that from Paul, you get that from the book, from the Gospels, etc. this little while. The soon in the book of Revelation, as we were talking a little bit last time that we, we, we were on, um, the soon in the book of Revelation is actually a quotation from the book of Daniel. And it's simply saying that soon is now, that's already begun. Because in the book of Daniel, it says in the last days, in Daniel 2, 28, 29, and 45. And we referred to this last time. Uh, Jan says that, that, oh, King, you had this vision of what's going to take place in the last days. And all of a sudden, Revelation then quotes those passages and changes it to quickly or soon. And so I think what Revelation is saying is, is, is that it, the process has already begun. But the notion, it certainly seems that Paul believed it was going to happen maybe within even his lifetime. Um, and that didn't happen. So I don't know how to answer that other than say, uh, well, we're going to struggle with some tension there. Mm -hmm. And so not all problems are equations that need to be solved. Yeah, no, the answer is, okay, guess what? Someday we'll sit before the throne and say, okay, I got one. I got one for you, big guy. Um, <laughs> what's this quickly thing that Paul was like, had the, Paul believed it was going to happen any day now and, and it didn't happen, right? And he died 1900 years after Paul, so we're still going on. Uh, what's up with, yeah, that, mark that one down. That'd be question number one. Awesome. Well, hey, this was a fun, fun conversation. Hopefully, uh, Good. you know, for, for folks who are listening, the conversation of apocalypse. I know when I first started learning about this, it was really blowing my mind. So if you're one of those folks, um, I hope you're not uh, freaking out too much. Uh, as the saying goes, if, if, you know, if too much went over your head, maybe it hit some of the person behind you. <laughs> and so we, we hope that there's something for everyone, but maybe even go back and re-listen to this again. Um, yeah. You know, follow the lamb. Your book uh, would probably be a good place to start for folks if they're getting introduced to this. Any other resources uh, specifically to understanding apocalyptic literature that might be a good starting place? Uh, well, let's put some more, we'll put some references in the show notes okay. uh, again. So they can call, uh, refer, obviously Michael Gorman's books and there's a few others that I, that I would refer to as uh, also. Okay. 
Great. Well, hey, everyone, thanks for hanging out. We're going to have another show uh, next week and we're going to continue diving into this. And next week is going to be, are we doing letters or profits next time? We'll we'll do do prophecy and we'll we'll piggyback. So if you kind of got like, I'm not sure I understand all this apocalyptic stuff. We'll, we'll kind of expand upon it a little bit more um, next week as well as we talk about prophecy. So we'll keep, keep, keep digging into it and figuring out what all this means. Fantastic. Well, hey, everyone, thanks for uh, checking out the Determined Truth podcast. Uh, make sure to subscribe and like, leave a review. Let us know how this is affecting you and uh, things that you'd like to hear about as well. So thanks a lot. Uh, we will check you guys out next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.